you are no longer tortured, you no longer have the voices in your head, you no longer need to worry about food and weight and shape all the time. You just eat, your body's needs are met and you go live your life, right? Mm -hmm. And you build a beautiful life. You're listening to the very first episode of the Inside Out Institute podcast. Inside Out is Australia's National Centre for Clinical Excellence and Research into Eating Disorders, and this is our brand new podcast, so welcome. My name's Steph Boulay, and I'm the host of the Inside Out Institute podcast. We want this podcast to be a space for us to talk about all things eating disorders, like the latest treatment, research and innovation, finding the road to recovery and the journey for loved ones and family. But for our very first episode, we'll be talking about recovery, not a small topic. We'll be talking about things like what is recovery? How do we define it? Is a full recovery even possible? And importantly, how do you find your identity and find out who you are in and through the recovery process? Our guest is Dr. Sarah Maguire, the director of Inside Out and a very experienced psychologist. I think she's got 20 years experience in the field and she's done lots of research as well. But before we get to that discussion with Sarah, I'm going to share a little bit about my story. I'm a former journalist with the ABC and Triple J, and I now work at Inside Out doing communications. The plan is to start every one of these podcasts by telling someone's story, someone who has an experience and can give us an insight into having or living with someone with an eating disorder. But I thought that for this first episode, I could tell my story. I somehow managed to recover from anorexia, and hopefully by telling my story, telling what happened to me, I can help other people as well. I struggled with an eating disorder from when I was about 15 until my early 20s, and it was undoubtedly the hardest and most toughest part of my life. It was basically going through hell. It was like having a war waging in my head day and night and I could not escape it and I just felt like I was wasting so much time and years. I don't really know why it started. There were probably multiple factors and I really believe that genetics does play a strong part as well. I was training heavily for athletics and I lost a little bit of weight and that helped my performance and then I must have hit a tipping point and then it was a real battle. I just couldn't eat. I just kept on eating less and less and the voices in my head were just demanding uh, to eat less and less and exercise more and more and um, I just became extremely sick and fixated. My brain was fixated and I was out of control. It was a really tough time for my parents and I think it put their marriage under a lot of strain because they were just so helpless in the whole situation watching me starve myself and I remember at one point after a particularly difficult lunch where I hadn't eaten enough and they were fighting with me to try to eat more and I just ran out of the house in frustration and anger because I couldn't I didn't know what else to do to handle these emotions after eating and I just was like I'm going for a run and my father just ran down the street chasing me and he just held me in his arms. I, I struggled with him a bit and tried to fight him. And he just held me so tight 
and he just said, I'm not going to let you die. I'm not going to let you die. He just repeated it and he cried and I just crumbled in his arms and he just, he just fell to the floor in the middle of, in the middle of the street and um, it was just a really tough time. I think when things were at their worst, I was at uni. I went away to uni, so I was at a country town and I wasn't coming home for weekends because I knew that my parents wouldn't let me go back to uni. So I just didn't want them to see me and how emaciated I'd become and how much I was really struggling. So I stayed at uni until one point my one of my housemates just basically staged an intervention and she said, I can't sit here and let this happen. I'm not going to let this happen. And she drove me to the emergency department and the emergency department looked me over and said, look, your vitals are fine. You seem fine. Just go to your GP. And so the next day, my housemate again took me to the GP, forced me to go. When I got to the GP, she took my heart rate and I don't really remember. I think it was in the 30s. And she just said, you're not going anywhere, you're not leaving this room. She called an ambulance and the ambulance took me to the emergency department. And that night I was attached to a monitor, a heart monitor. And every now and then my heart would get low and it would beep and um, it would wake me up. And then a nurse or someone would <laughs> rush over and just check on me and see how I was. And it was very terrifying. I overheard them at the nurse's station saying, what do we do if it gets any lower? And they just, there was just silence. They didn't know what to do. The next morning, I was airlifted back to Sydney and I was taken to a um, mental health hospital where I stayed for many weeks. The refeeding was, was really hard because my body wasn't used to having any food and suddenly I was eating six to seven meals a day. Um, but it was also really helpful because at that point it was somehow a relief because I was so underweight I couldn't make any rational decisions for myself. I didn't know how much was a normal amount of food. I didn't know how much food I had to eat to put on weight. They forced me to rest and to eat and to see that um, food was the medicine. It was medicine and I just had to look at it like that. So recovery definitely wasn't a straight line. I would get better and better and then I'd get worse and even worse. Gradually um, over time the better got better and the worse was not as bad and then suddenly it had been months and then years that I hadn't been underweight and I hadn't had any crisis moments and then a few more months and a few more years and food and exercise just weren't a thing anymore. One of the things that really helped towards the end of the journey was meeting a psychologist who specialised in eating disorders but she also was a dietitian and so during our appointments we'd flick between head stuff and food stuff and head stuff and food stuff and I found that really helpful. So that's a little bit of my journey but along the way I was always, I always hated it. I was very determined not to be sick and not to let it take over my life. You're listening to the Inside Out Institute podcast. Rethinking eating disorders from the inside out. So our guest today is Dr. Sarah Maguire, and she'll be a regular guest on this podcast. Sarah is the director of Inside Out, as I mentioned earlier, and she's a psychologist with some 20 years experience, a researcher into the field of eating disorders, and she's an all-round good egg. So Sarah, for me, one of the things when I was um, on getting better on the up was um, what is recovery and at what point are you healthy and fine and it's all over and 
along the journey, a lot of clinicians and other people that I came across said to me, you know, this is something that you'll always have, something that you'll manage for life. And at the time, that was just the last thing you want to hear. You're in a really terrible space and they're saying you'll always have a piece of that trailing you in your life like a shadow. It's a haunting idea. And and I think sometimes when, you know, in a really stressful environment, might still have some thoughts. And so for me, I defined it recovery as being able to, you know, maybe have those thoughts sometimes, but not act on it. So maintaining a healthy weight and not beha- doing any of the behaviours. And I kind of came to a, you know, a place where that was that was recovery for me. So what is what is recovery? Like, do you have to be BMI 18, 18.5 plus? Do you have to be hmm. no thoughts at all, zero thoughts? Okay, well, the first thing I want to say in response to what you said is that I'm really sorry that at that point in your journey that you were trying to find your way out of it, that a number of health professionals and doctors and others, but particularly people in from my walks of life, you know, from the health professional side of things, said to you that you will always have it and it will always shadow you and underlie things because there's just no way for anyone to know that. Mm-hmm. Um, at that point in the journey, I don't think, I, I can't predict um, f- for which patients it won't completely resolve and um, for whom it will completely resolve. What I can say is that that there is no need to believe when you embark on recovery that it is going to linger forever. If you think it's going to linger forever, there, what is the point? Like there is yes, little motivation that. to yeah. even start the journey because why would you? So why did you start the journey then, given that you were told that early on? You know, how did you then... Because I looked at the stats and I found... I don't even know where, but something that was like X amount of people will have this forever and die and there is a small percentage who will recover and I was just hanging on hope, but there were very, very dark that moments. That you fell like it was in... The, you, you hoped that you fell in that group of yeah. people that you read about in the statistics that made a full recovery. Yeah. So in a way, you went and sought your own information about what the likelihood was. Yep. You didn't believe necessarily what you were told. I, you sought your own no. information and then you made a pretty determined decision that you were going to be in the group that you wanted to be in and good on you and 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 I I believe that that would have played no small part in you making such a full and complete recovery you know mm-hmm. and you know I know you quite well now and of course you never know a person's innermost thoughts and and goings on unless they want you to but I feel your recovery, you know, and I know it's quite a long way. I know it's a long way. It's many years away now. But but I think you and I have both had conversations where you can sort of feel, you know, sometimes Mm -hmm. when people aren't there yet or want to be there but but haven't quite made it. And, um, you know, I know you worked really hard and that feeling certainly doesn't linger with you. But, but, okay, let me answer your question. Um, yeah, I'm sorry that you were told that, and you're quite right. The stats bear out that you can get well. Actually, if you summarise all of the outcome stats, you know, and our research is getting better and better all the time, 50% of people will make a full recovery regardless, right? Mm-hmm. Then there's this sort of 30% that we're not quite sure about. This is when we're talking about anorexia nervosa, of course, which is the illness under discussion today. Um 
they make a partial recovery. Maybe some of them are starting to make more full recoveries as our treatments are getting slightly better Mm -hmm. and as our intervention points are getting better. Mm -hmm. Well, because what you've got to realise is by the time a paper's published, that research has probably taken place best of 10 years ago, especially mm. if you're talking about long-term outcome from the onset of an illness, right? That's that's old treatment in old systems with people that are now longer no part of the system that you're reviewing and seeing how they did. So hopefully we're, we're impacting on that 30% that were, that were in the past sort of graded as some partial um, recovery. And then you've got 20% that will have a chronic course of illness and or die, you know, and obviously that's the worst outcome. But if you look at the statistics, there's an 80% chance that you're going to be on the other side. So I don't know why you were told that. And there's a 50% chance that you could be completely recovered. So the stats were on your side in that case. Um, And when I'm starting out with people, when someone walks into my office for treatment, it doesn't really matter how unwell they are. Um, It doesn't really matter how long they've been sick for. I'm talking about people who come into my office who I literally send them straight to the hospital and they don't come out for many months before we commence therapy, that doesn't impact whether or not I think they can get well or not. Um, It's certainly not the version of recovery that I work from. Um, When someone's in my room, I almost immediately visualise where I want them to get to and what I can see for them if they're able to come out from under the illness and we're always working towards that. But that might not be something that you share with the person straight away and that is something that certainly in a lot of cases takes a great number of years. So what if someone has recovered to a point where they can still function in life but they are still underweight and they're still restricting and they're still over-exercising, but they're functioning in life. Do you persist with them or do you just let that happen? Is am I recovered? Is that a thing? What's, is there a definition um, for this? Well, I think, yeah, I mean, some people would use that definition that, that you've just put forward. I think you've got to honour um, that for some people... Um, well, I think you've got to honour that for all people, they will have their version of what recovery is. So topic for today's podcast. What is what is recovery? Who knows? You know, <laughs> it varies. I th- I've just said to you, for me, when someone walks I- into my office and chooses to work with me, where I'm aiming for is a, a place where you are no longer tortured, you no longer have the voices in your head, you no lo- longer need to worry about food and weight and shape all the time. You just eat, your body's needs are met and you go live your life, right? Mm-hmm. And you build a beautiful life. But I'm not gonna. I'm not necessarily gonna put that on you, because that is too conflict, um, too too conflicting for yes. you at this point in time, and too much responsibility. We've just got to take it very very slowly and see where we can go. And then, of course, there's another thing that you're always thinking about in your head when you're a therapist working with people that have an illness that that is severe and of this nature, or, or chronic and of this nature, and that is, it is possible they will be in the category that just does not get well. Mm. and that plays with your mind and it's it's hard to know what to do with that sometimes. So when somebody is nearing the end of... Well, how do you know when someone's nearing the end of a treatment journey? Is it usually you who says, I think you're on your way now, or is it usually the patient who says, I think I'm good? I don't know that I've ever been in 
a recovery journey with someone um, along the lines of the type of recovery journey we're talking about today where either of us have said that actually. Okay. Um, so is it kind of left hanging in your chest? I'm remembering, now and then? I'm, I'm thinking about lots of different sessions I will have had with people over the years that it takes to recover when one is that severely ill, um, mm -hmm. where, where, you know, my, my client will be in a place of desperation and asking if it's possible or asking if they're on the right track or asking, you know, where are we going now? And, and I will mm -hmm. say to them, you're doing great. You're doing great. This is, this is, in my mind, this is the virtuous cycle. In my mind, this is the path out. You mightn't be able to see it right now. You mightn't be able to feel it. But in my mind, this all feels right and good. So I've had lots of points along the line where I'm saying that, but I can't remember any sort of days yeah. or, or moments where you say, you're good now. I think every <laughs> end, wrap it up in a nice bow, <laughs> That's right. shift you on your way. Yeah. I think everyone nice? knows when it's starting to happen. You, you have these real points in therapy where it really changes. That's the thing, because it takes so many years. You're not just suddenly recovered. You are recovering for years. Are you? Would you say that? You, for you, the journey was that even when you were recovered... In You're inverted still, commas, yeah. there were years after where now looking back, you actually you, you kind of yeah, like right. you dip in and out a little bit, yeah, you know, okay. you know, just mm. a little bit in and out because it's a really good coping mechanism. Mm. Like it's so, I think that's one of the hardest things to get rid of because it's like very effective in numbing, you know, any sort of extreme emotions. You can numb it immediately, and you just have to learn how to feel those feelings and that takes a long time I think that's what the tail end for me those last couple of years was learning that to feel the feelings feeling the feelings yeah. and I had a really really good psychologist and I think she really just helped with that bit mm. well that resonates with my experience that that absolutely I would call one phase of therapy that is definitely not the first phase that you yep, do with no. people. It's somewhere <laughs> down the track is we've got to talk about feelings. Yeah. And more than talk about feelings, we've got to actually bring them up into your body. Yeah. They're there, Feel but you it. may not be aware of them. We need to bring them into your awareness. Mm -hmm. You need to be able to tolerate that and not either have, as a lot of people do, there's actually an automatic shutdown. As soon as that they get the trigger and the body actually starts forming its physical response to the emotion, They're, they actually have a trigger in their own body that turns that whole thing off and they numb or they dissociate Yeah. or they turn straight to the behaviour without any form of awareness. Yeah, totally. You don't even, you don't even know what you're doing it. No, you don't know you're And doing then suddenly it. you feel you're not doing those behaviours and you're feeling all this stuff and you're just like... It's so and it's, it's so overwhelming. It's, over, it's overwhelming. It so long, it's yeah. overwhelming, and especially for you know, I don't know that our society does a particularly good job of teaching children what feelings are. You know? No, yeah, <laughs> and I think for our generation, our parents were very much. I don't know if this is a very very big generalization, but we're just like, I just want you to be happy. I just want you to be happy. And now I have a, I have a child yep. and I don't want him to just be happy. I want him to feel it all yeah, and just okay. and live it all yeah, and live okay. it all 
every emotion. You want him to be fearful at times. You want him to be angry at times. You want him yeah. to be guilty and shameful yeah. at times. You want him to be happy. You want to him be to be human. joyful because that is being human. And accept exactly. it yeah. and ride the wave yeah. and feel it. Because well, that feeling is a wave, you know. It has it a beginning, a, a middle yeah. and an end. And it rises up to a crescendo where it feels unbearable. And that's the point where all of us want relief. You know, Mm -hmm. and we either learn to create a mechanism in our brain and body where we cut that off and we don't feel it, like an eating disorder, alcohol, lots of other things Mm -hmm. that we can do, or we learn to, it'll have a beginning, a middle and an end, it will rise, but if I stay with that peak and I don't leave, I'm going to notice in minutes, maybe longer, hours, sometimes a day or two if it's a really big trigger, but I'm going to notice it coming down and it becomes bearable. And if you ride the wave, the wave leaves the body. So that is a big piece. So I would say that that's a part of every single person's recovery journey Mm -hmm. without fail. You, You can't get well from any illness that you've used to numb emotions without doing the emotions piece. So... Tell me, what do you think recovery is? I still don't know. I think, as we've mentioned, it's probably different for everyone. But I think we, I think we really need to reassess our view and redefine it. I think we should redefine recovery because it, it will look different for everyone. I think as long as it's not battle a battle in your head, as long as you're not thinking about it, as long as you're not basing your decisions and your life on, you know, those sort of behaviours and you're free from it, I think I think that's... That's yeah. a total recovery for you, is it? Yeah. Yeah. Because I used to think that it would be no thoughts about it at all, but I think sometimes, even now, if I'm under a lot of stress or, you know, there's massive triggers or something, I'll still have the thoughts... But I just will never act on it. And I think that that's... Everybody has their thing. Yeah. Their coping mechanisms. Everyone has their coping mechanisms. That's right. You, you must have them or you won't cope. And it's just about a, a balance between really healthy coping mechanisms. And, of course, everyone, you know, has one that isn't as healthy probably. <laughs> you lie down on the couch and you don't get up for a few hours. Or you, drink or you have a glass of wine. Alcohol, or yeah. you, um, you know, have a little you know, expression of your emotion that doesn't necessarily work for everyone else around you. You know, everyone's got ones, but, but yep. you know, I yep. suppose that question is how much harm is it doing? How much harm is it? Is it yeah. destructive? Yeah. Yeah. Um, while you were talking, I thought there might be something really important to say, which is that, you know, I love that you sort of struggled with this notion of recovery while you were trying to recover <laughs> and that you were questioning what health professionals were saying to you and what other people were saying to you and that you just applied this sort of d- determination um, to making sure you were in the basket where you got the most out of it, you know, mm-hmm. that you didn't... It sounds like you didn't want a half... No, that was, that was my worst nightmare, yeah. Because, you see... I, well, I had, in my experience, seen people... I hadn't really seen a full recovered... A person with anorexia who had recovered fully. Or There were people who said that they had anorexia and had recovered, but you could tell that physically they were underweight or I had never really seen them eat anything other than, you know, fruit or black coffee or, you know, there, there was a few instances that, that popped up like that and I was like, well, that's not... Good enough enough. It's not good enough. Look, 
what I would say about that is there was obviously stuff, for want of a much better word, within you and processes that you were able to go through and people that you met along the way, the right therapists at the right time, Mm. the right influences at the right time that enabled you to get right down deep under a lot of the stuff and resolve it and move it Mm -hmm. so that you could get to that place where you really, for all intents and purposes, are completely free of the thoughts, the behaviours, the urges. It doesn't occupy your head. Mm -hmm. It doesn't occupy your life. You You are married. You have a child. You have a profession. You're studying. You know, you've got friendships. You've got this wonderful full life that the illness didn't allow you to have for the period that you had it, right? Mm -hmm. And wonderful. Don't we want that for everybody? Mm -hmm. Of course. And you know, if you're out there and you're suffering from an eating disorder and this resonates with you, find a therapist who wants to go on that journey with you and who wants to keep trying. That's Mm. right. And who doesn't lose heart when you're two or three years in and it's still not looking like it. Mm -hmm. Because when you've had a complex, serious illness, we're talking well over two and three years, you know, to get there. Um, So find the right therapist and trust that you can and find a therapist who trusts that you can, you Mm -hmm. know, and go through that journey. But what I would say for a lot of people, maybe they are not able to find the stuff within them or find the resources out there or go through the right processes. And there can be such a dramatic change for them from being in a place where there was very little choice and very little headspace to somewhere where they are out eating a fruit salad and having a coffee. That's still yeah. a massive... Yeah. Yeah. And that it might be enough, yeah. you know? It might be enough that to do the rest of it is too painful or too hard or not able for whatever reason, resources, people available, mm-hmm. the own person's limitations that they want to respect. And so I just want to just honour that and say there can be different levels and types and forms of recovery and none is more valuable than the other. So good. Um, And what about when you have patients who have never really, who don't have a memory of their life beforehand? So if they've had, they've started into an eating disorder at 12, 13, like I was, you know, 16, 17, 18 when it Mm -hmm. really got bad. So I had had years of adolescence where I just remember it being free and care, you know, not thinking about food and just loving life and being happy. So I was like, always like, there is a better way. But what if you are, if you have someone who doesn't have that to reflect on and doesn't have that past where they're, mm-hmm. they, they're like, this is it, it doesn't get better than this? Yeah, well, that's a really good question. I think you said a little earlier um, in our conversation today that, you know, it is a really, really good set of coping mechanisms. So when you were in those sort of mm. earlier phases of recovery, if anything stressful or triggering came along, it was the first thing that came to mind and you mm-hmm. had to really fight to not engage with the behaviours. And I would say that's po- probably we could look at that from a couple of angles. We could look at it like it's a really good set of coping strategies. But the other thing that we know about anorexia nervosa is that it over time becomes part of your identity. Yes. So coming out from under it is not just about resisting the urge to cope that way, mm-hmm. but it is about working out who you are without the illness. Yeah. yeah. And if you haven't had much of a self mm-hmm. develop prior to the illness onsetting, then that can be a more challenging process. Mm-hmm. 
And But it's the same process, really. You know, when you're working with someone who onset when they're five years of age versus someone who whose illness onset when they're 15 years of age or 20 years of age, if they've had it for a while and it has become entrenched and ingrained and it has taken over their functioning and it's taken over, to a certain extent, their identity, mm-hmm. and you'll speak to lots of people who have anorexia nervosa who, when you ask them, can you separate the illness from yourself, they say, I cannot. Mm-hmm. And that question doesn't necessarily distinguish who'll get better from who won't. It's just that at that point when you're really sick, you can't separate it from yourself. So what do you do when you're working with someone who, who doesn't can't remember who they were or the self that they had? Um, you just have to... I've always believed that part of what you do is that you build you build the self up and you build parts of the self up and parts of life that form self. We all have things that we engage in that are part of us, you know, that come from um, from within us and then are expressions of us out in the world. Sometimes your work can be that. Sometimes your relationships can be that. Sometimes your values are So you're are trying that. to find that. Find you're that finding thing. that. But I do think that we all are born with a self. Yeah. And it either gets encouraged and developed or it gets discouraged and it doesn't develop. And some people talk about anorexia nervosa as being a false self, Mm -hmm. that in the absence of the real self feeling like they can cope in the world or are good enough in the world or are accepted in the world, they create a perfect false self to act for them in the world. So your job is let's find all the parts that are real. Let's follow them. Maybe they won't lead where we need to, yeah. but it doesn't matter. Let's explore. It's a journey. You, yeah. Painting, great. <laughs> Church, awesome. Yeah. Friends, can we? Let's see all the obstacles to friends because you've got to eat with friends and stuff like that, right? Mm. Let's get there. Relationships, let's get there. Mm-hmm. You know, kids, one day. Okay, come on, let's do it, you know. <laughs> so we build up all those parts of self and in the end... There's just no room for the anorexia, really. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. There's Mm. no room left. Um, And also, speaking of creating an identity, your identity afterwards is different to the one before. And I think a lot of the time during the journey, you're like, I just want to be how I used to be. I just want to be how I used to be. Right, okay. Like, I want to go back to that. Well, for me, it was. But then, like, someone said to me, I can't remember who or where. (laughs) It's all a bit hazy. But they were like, you don't want to be that person again. You don't want to be that person. That person was susceptible to getting anorexia like who was using bad coping mechanisms like you don't want to be that person anymore you're going to be a different person now mm. so you know obviously you're the stu- you know there's parts of the same but mm. you have why do you think you wanted to be was it because you only had two selves to choose from it's like yeah I can yeah. either be this ill self or I remember this other one so I'll go back your to head that. was like go back there go back yeah. there go back there and you just needed someone to help you shift and go no let's create a new one yeah totally you know and of course yeah. that's an integration of your past selves we're not a broken line we're hopefully yeah. some sort of continuous line of it's all part of a story it's a yeah, yeah it's all part of your yeah. narrative and i would imagine that um, your illness and your struggle with your illness and your ability to overcome your illness are now a part of self yeah yeah definitely and that's like a that's a strong part it would be a strong part. Well, do we leave it there? That recovery so. <laughs> is about finding the strong part. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for this very first episode of the Inside Out Institute podcast. We'll be releasing a podcast every quarter and a few little tidbits and bonus episodes in between. But we also want to know what you want to talk about. 
So if you have any ideas or if you'd like to tell your story on our podcast, get in touch on our website or our Facebook page. Thanks for joining us and catch you next time. If you or a loved one needs support, please head to our website or call the National Eating Disorders Helpline at Butterfly on 1800 ED HOPE or 1800 33 46 73.